Welcome to the Tiny Living Beings podcast. I'm your host, Julia Van Etten. Each episode, I have a conversation with a scientist about a microorganism they like and why it's interesting to them. Our planet is full of billions of different microscopic organisms, most of which are still unknown to science. The ones we do know are diverse and strange. This week, I spoke with Kira Hartog, a veterinarian, about leptospira bacteria, which can cause infections in animals like dogs, rhinos, and humans. Last week's episode was about an amoeba, which is a protist. Protists are eukaryotic organisms, which means that they have cells with nuclei and organelles like mitochondria. This week, the organism we talk about is a bacterium, which is a prokaryote. Prokaryotes include the bacteria and archaea domains of life, and these organisms don't surround their DNA with a nucleus and lack membrane-bound organelles. There are other differences between eukaryotic and prokaryotic organisms, but I just thought I'd give you a little biology refresher to put the two episodes into context. Both organisms featured on this podcast so far can infect humans, but they are so different their evolution is separated by billions of years of divergence. I let my guests choose which organism they talk about, so not all future episodes will be about things that cause illness, but so far we're two for two. For more information about microbes or the podcast, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. While some of the content on this podcast may be relevant to human or veterinary medicine, this information is not medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this program are those of the host and guests and do not reflect the views of any institution. Enjoy the episode. Welcome to Tiny Living Beings. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Kira Hartog, who is a veterinarian in St. Pete, Florida. Hi, Kira. How's it going? Good. Before we get into the content of the podcast today, could you tell me a little bit about your educational background and what you do for your job? Sure. So, hi, everybody. Uh, I'm Kira. I am a general practice veterinarian um, in Florida, so that means that I am your neighborhood vet that you would bring your dog or cat to. My educational background is I did my undergraduate degree at University of Miami, which is where I met Julia, and I was in the marine biology department, so marine science and biology were my majors, and uh, chemistry and mathematics were my minors. I did the standard marine biology program, but I also did the pre-veterinary track, so I took some additional classes to fulfill my requirements for vet school. So that involved your basic biology, chemistry, and then microbiology, biochem, organic chem, physics, and a couple of extra animal science, animal nutrition classes that I had to take online. I have a big interest in shark conservation, so that was a big thing that I did in undergrad. I don't get to do it, unfortunately, as much anymore, but that was my main thing that I did on the weekends in undergrad was work with the shark conservation lab out of Miami. After undergrad, I went to veterinary school at University of Florida. I did their regular veterinary program as well as their aquatic animal health certificate program. So a couple extra aquatic animal health classes on top of my regular vet school curriculum. Vet school is four years, not required to do a residency afterwards unless you want to do some kind of specialization in a different field. So if I had gone into aquatic medicine or zoo medicine or something like that, then I would have done a residency. But I did my vet school, did a one-year internship at a big specialty hospital in Tampa Bay area, and decided that I was tired and didn't (laughs) want to go back to school for more time. 
my original interests were in zoo and aquatic medicine. So I was planning on doing a residency, but decided that for my mental health to take a step back and just do what I could do with my vet school and my internship. So I did what's called relief work where I jumped around a bunch of different clinics and filled in for their veterinarians for a year. And then I settled down at my current clinic where I am and we see dogs and cats on a daily basis. We don't really do a lot of extra um, exotics or anything like that potentially in the future. But for right now, just your everyday dogs and cats, we're a pretty busy practice. We do high quality medicine. So we do a lot of, you know, big workups for sick animals and we do a lot of wellness care as well. And yeah, that's pretty much my day to day. It's a, it's a great job. It's, it's really fun. It's not always cuddling puppies and kittens, but a lot of times it is, which is really nice. <laughs> um, and we do our best to, to help with all the animals that we can, but uh, I work with a really great group of people. So it's a good, it's a good team and it's a, it's a fun job. That was great. I, as I've told you, I think that being a veterinarian seems like a very cool and amazing job. So I'm a little yeah. jealous. <laughs> yeah. Um, well, I'm jealous of the cat part. I don't know if I'm jealous of the dog part, but <laughs> <laughs> there are cat only veterinarians. I have a That's... few crazy people that I know that are do feline only practice and I couldn't do it, but there definitely exists out there for those crazy cat ladies. Well, if I knew about that in college, maybe I would have been, <laughs> I would have been doing a different podcast now. Right. Okay. So what microbe are you going to be talking about today? Yeah, so when Julie asked me what my favorite microbe was, um, there's definitely a lot of cool ones out there, but I found leptospirosis to be the one that I think is really cool, relevant. It's got public health relevance, wildlife relevance, and something that we see in dogs and cats, and it's a preventable disease as well. So we're going to be talking about leptospirosis today. Great. And just to clarify, so leptospirosis is the infection that's caused by leptospira bacteria or bacteria yes. in this in the genus leptospira. Yes. Can you talk a little bit about just some general information on the bacterium itself before we get into the infection? What does it look like? How does yeah. it move? What does it what does it do? Yeah, so leptospira is a group of bacteria. There's a lot of different species within the group Leptospira. So we call them spirochetes. So spirochetes are corkscrew-shaped bacteria. They look like little squiggly corkscrews under a microscope. These ones particularly are aerobic, meaning they like oxygen, and they're gram-negative, meaning they don't stain, their cell wall doesn't stain very dark when you do gram staining. Mm -hmm. They grow really slowly, and they only grow in specific media. So it's hard for them to culture and it's hard to diagnose them sometimes. They move in a corkscrew fashion, so they kind of squiggle along under a microscope. There's different types. There's pathogenic species, meaning the ones that cause disease. And then there's some saprophytic species, which are ones that live in the soil and feed on dead and decaying stuff in the in the dirt. When they first came out, they were classified based on what's called serovars. So there was a bunch of different classes based on the antigens that they had on the surface of the bacteria. Now they've, with genetic testing and things like that, where they with, with genomics, they've been able to subcategorize them into genomo species. So there's nine pathogenic ones, six intermediate ones, meaning sometimes they cause the disease, sometimes they don't, and then six non-pathogenic ones that we know of. 
they're kind of cute looking. I had, you know, they're kind of just little, they look like a wine corkscrew pretty much. There's, I won't go into all the names of the different ones because mm-hmm. they're hard to pronounce, <laughs> um, but there are a bunch of different names. The most common ones that we see in dogs are interrogans and Kirshneri. So that's the one that my focus tends to be on, but there's a lot of different ones depending on geography, species of animal that's affected, things like that. As far as like history of it, it was first described in Germany in 1886 by a guy named Adolf Weil. He noted patients with icterus, which is the other term for jaundice, um, or yellowing of the skin. And he noticed uh, kidney failure in patients. It's also been noted in historical records as an occupational hazard for people that worked in rice fields in China. And in Japan, it has a name called Akiyami, which means autumn fever. So that's the clinical disease. It was noted first in rats in um, 1917. That's how they figured out that humans were able to, that's where it came from for humans. And then in dogs um, in the early 1930s. So yeah, that's pretty much like the history of it what it looks like, what it's why it's called that. But yes, leptospirosis is the clinical disease. Leptospira is the bacteria. So it's good good clarification there. No, that was that was a great description and history. <laughs> so <laughs> before I, I know we'll talk all about how the infection works, but I guess before that, now we know what it looks like. We know that there's many different species and some of them are, I guess, pathogenic and some aren't. And you mentioned some are in the soil and some are in these rice fields. Is this bacterium ubiquitous in nature? Is it is it everywhere? Like where where can it be found? And I guess and I guess that'll lead into where can an animal pick this up? The most common places we see it are places where there's a lot of standing water, really wet environments. So we see it a lot in tropical and subtropical regions. So where I live for mm-hmm. sure, that kind of Caribbean, like all around the equator kind of area, all around the world. We tend to see a lot more of it after heavy rains within like three months after really wet weather. And in humans, when you see outbreaks of leptospirosis, it tends to be in your classic places where maybe public health and hygiene stuff isn't as, the infrastructure is not as great. So Caribbean, South America, India, Southeast Asia, Indonesia, those kinds of places, anywhere where there's wetness, wet weather, standing water, and a lot of moisture, which is where rice fields tend to do really well. So that makes sense. And a lot of times in Florida and the Caribbean, we'll see a lot after big storms, after hurricanes and things like that. So that's the the most common place we find it is is wet spots and any place where there's a lot of wildlife as well. So squirrels, raccoons, possums, rodents of any kind. So theoretically, especially with climate change, you're going to be seeing it further and further north and south from our normal spots because you know, you have those rodents and animals everywhere and it's getting increasingly more wet in certain places. So it's all, it's a risk everywhere, but it's most common in those tropical, subtropical areas. That makes a lot of sense. And I don't think people often think that different diseases they might encounter are affected by different like weather and climate and environmental conditions. So I'm glad you brought up the climate change angle. Yeah. <laughs> Can you describe the life cycle of this bacterium and does it need to infect as part of its life cycle? Do only the infectious species need to infect as part of their life cycle or are these spirochete bacteria always trying to live in other types of cells and organisms? Good question on the the pathogenic versus the non-pathogenic. So 
So basically, these organisms kind of live in mammalian reservoirs. So your rodents, rabbits, squirrels, that kind of stuff, they are the carrier species. So they will hang out there, and then they usually are secreted in urine, and they contaminate the environment. They can survive for a really long time in soil and water, up to weeks and months, and then they're usually transmitted to other mammals on the way. There are a few free-living lepto species, um, a couple of those non-pathogenic forms like to hang out in the dirt and they can stay there but because they can survive for so long but the pathogenic species do need a host to to hang on to so the that's called the the maintenance host or the, the carrier host um carrier <laughs> state um, sorry, dog bark um so he's like who are you myrtle? calling a host myrtle <laughs> she's laying down and barking at nothing She's not even lifting her head. <laughs> so the maintenance hosts, the carrier hosts, the leptospires live in the tubules of their kidneys. So your kidneys have all these little tubule, little subunits inside their kidneys that actually do the filtering of all the waste in your body. And so that's where in those carrier animals, they'll hang out. Sometimes they hang out in other parts of the urinary tract, and sometimes they are in the eyes, weirdly enough. Okay. And that's the infection reservoir those animals that are maintenance hosts don't generally get sick um and then the hosts that are not the normal hosts so dogs and some other you know animals that we can go through those are the ones that have illness and they don't stay in those kidneys for a very long time two follow-up questions to that one is how do the bacteria get to the kidneys and then also could you list some examples of maintenance hosts and then some examples of the other hosts yeah so those carrier species are going to usually be your rodents around here we have mostly squirrels and rats possums raccoons and skunks and cervids and weirdly which are like deer elk moose you know those big animals and then cats are carrier species so those are the ones that don't get clinical illness especially we think that outdoor cats and feral cats which are a big problem for wildlife in general are probably a big infectious disease reservoir as well so another reason to keep your kitty inside or on Mm -hmm. a leash if they're outside the clinically affected animals so ones that are not your carrier species are going to be humans dogs horses donkeys any of the equids livestock so cattle pigs and sheep we see a lot of it in marine mammals so sea lions and harbor seals have a pretty well-studied clinical picture of lepto and then black rhinoceros weirdly as well have um, there's been a lot of cases in black rhinos so those are the most clinically affected ones so it is a concern for public health because humans can get it and it is transmitted from wildlife to humans and back so that is something that we definitely worry about in humans it is a zoonotic disease as we call it okay as far as how it gets into the kidneys those pathogenic strains are the ones that you worry about so the other ones the non-pathogenic ones stay in the soil you don't really need to worry about them the pathogenic ones have basically some additional things within and on top of the bacteria that allows them to break through different layers so most commonly a lot in animals we'll see them ingest feces or urine of wildlife that's contaminated or soil or something like that but theoretically it can get through broken skin cuts and mucous membranes and things like that so they basically have different factors on them, um, and every version of lepto has got slightly different factors, but they have different things that allow them to 
break through the skin. They have what are called lipopolysaccharides that can stimulate inflammation. They have these things called sphingomyelinases, which basically form little holes in cells and allow them to get through Hmm. into those cells. And then they have a bunch of different proteins that interfere with your immune system's ability to knock them out before they can get to where they go. So they usually get in the bloodstream first and your kidneys have a lot of blood vessels. And so they like to settle in the kidneys after they, you know, get into the bloodstream um, through, you know, it's a really complicated pathogenesis of fancy terms, yeah. <laughs> but they basically um, make holes in cells, get into the bloodstream and then end up in settling in the kidneys. Wow. They have a lot of mechanisms, I guess, to be successful pathogens. So so yeah. they're, they're getting into the body, they're making holes in cells, they're evading the immune system in various ways. And then also because they're spirochetes, aren't they kind of like corkscrewing into cells and just like right. slithering their way in? Right. Okay. So that's that's pretty interesting. And so if oh, all I keep thinking is these the, the black rhinos have enough to deal with. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but oh, so I won't use them as an example. But say if a dog contracts leptospirosis, what exactly would that look like? How would that present to you as, sure. as, as a veterinarian? Yes. So there's a couple different types of illness. So there's uh, most dogs don't have much clinical illness, maybe a mild fever, but if their immune system is able to fight it off, then that's pretty much all they have. We probably see that in some of our vaccinated dogs. So there is a vaccine for leptospirosis that covers a couple different strains and some of those strains aren't covered. So those dogs that have some antibodies to lepto maybe just have a mild illness. For acute illness, so that means, you know, within one to three days, they get really sick. Those are the really bad cases. So a lot of dogs will have issues clotting their blood, damage to their blood vessels because of those little holes that yeah. the lepto poked in their blood vessels. You don't really have time for some of those kidney and kidney signs to develop because they get so sick so quickly. Oh. So that's one illness that's not super common, but definitely can happen. Then there's the subacute illness, which is basically a little bit longer, somewhere between three days to two weeks. That is, you see muscle tenderness and shivering because of inflammation in the muscle bellies. You see fever. A lot of animals are lethargic. Because of the impact on the kidneys, you will see decreased or no urine production, depending Mm -hmm. on how severely impacted the kidneys are, and vomiting, diarrhea, not wanting to eat because they don't feel well. Rarely, you can get some like lung complications. So it's not as common, but lepto can go to the lungs and you can get coughing and difficulty breathing. So that's the subacute one. It affects most of the kidneys and the liver in most dogs. So a lot of times you'll see symptoms of both kidney disease and liver disease, which are those things that we talked about. And then with chronic disease, so that's more than two weeks, you can get chronic damage to the kidneys and chronic damage to the liver, which can look like increased thirst and increased urination, maybe a yellow tinge. And then there are some other diseases that can happen like fluid buildup in the abdomen, uh, like long-term appetite issues, that kind of stuff. So all of those things have to do with those toxins that the the leptobacteria secrete, all of those different toxins are damaging to blood vessels, which are obviously everywhere, but your kidneys, your liver, and your lungs tend to be the first places where they like to go. And a lot of, there's a lot of blood clots involved in with those toxins as well. So that's another thing that we see. Okay. 
And if you had a dog that came in presenting with these symptoms, do you say, oh, this looks like leptospirosis or are there tests that you do? And then once you know that that's what it is, how, how easily is this treated? Does it go away? Does it persist? Does it yeah. lead to death? Um, what exactly yeah. are the outcomes? Yeah, so it, it's all dog dependent. Most of the time, these dogs just come in not feeling well. They're okay. just kind of not eating, not drinking, or maybe they're drinking a lot and urinating a lot. And so we're suspicious for kidney disease. Um, a lot of the diagnostics has to do with the history. So for a long time, leptospirosis was thought to be a big dog disease, and people assumed that little dogs didn't get it because we saw it a lot oh. in hunting dogs and animals that would go after rodents and things uh-huh. like that. Now we know that it's in, it's available, you know, it happens in all dogs, but especially if they've been any known interaction with rodents, that would be a big, you know, red flag as well as like an animal that spends a lot of time on a farm. Those are kind of our classic things. Got it. I usually start with initial blood work. Basically, that's a baseline for most sick animals. And we're going to see evidence of inflammation. We're going to see evidence of maybe issues with platelets in those dogs that are having clotting issues. And then we're going to see kidney enzyme elevations and liver enzyme elevations for the most part. There's a couple other things that go along with that, like some changes to your proteins. But the main thing is changes to those kidney numbers, which in dogs are your creatinine and blood urea nitrogen. And uh, then we have a couple liver enzymes like ALT, ALP, and bilirubin that will be elevated. So those are kind of classic things that we do. That just means that there's an issue with the kidney and liver. It could be anything causing that. And so the next step would be to try to look for the actual lepto organism. And that is hard because we talked about earlier how it's fastidious. It's hard to grow. Um, There's a lot of new molecular diagnostic techniques out there that can be used to, to diagnose it. So you can send out a long time ago, they did serology, which was, um, trying to grow that organism and then figure out exactly which one it is. Mm-hmm. That is something that's still done. Um, and you basically get titers based off of that. So you figure out how many lepto organisms are in the sample that you got. Um, you'll see titers with an, a vaccinated dog. So sometimes you can't tell the difference between right. true infection and vaccination yeah. based on those titers. So that's an issue with that, just like with COVID, you know, people mm-hmm. don't know if they have COVID or if they've just been exposed and vaccinated if they're doing antibody testing. There's a couple in-clinic tests that are not super reliable, especially early in the infection that we use. They don't usually look at try to look for it under the microscope because it doesn't work very well. So the most common thing we use is these PCR diagnostics that you can send out to a lab, and that tests for the bacterial DNA in Mm -hmm. urine and in blood. Usually with blood, you have to kind of do it in the first couple days and then it's shed in urine after that. So we'll usually send out both. But again, that can sometimes be hard to determine if it's true infection, if it's vaccination, things like that. And sometimes if there's not enough organism in that sample, it doesn't necessarily rule it out. So medicine is sometimes more of an art than a science because we don't always know 100%. But yeah, you're looking for, for that serology, you're looking for an increase in titers. So like a fourfold. So a lot of times you'll get a baseline and then maybe a couple of weeks later, you'll do another serology test and see how high those titers go up. But there are some PCR diagnostics to look for the actual organism, which have been really helpful as well. 
Okay. Yeah. That's good to know. PCR is hot right now. Um, (laughs) It's it's all over the news, which is nice because I don't have to explain some of the things I do in the lab to people so much anymore because they're familiar with PCR, which is great. Yeah. And so once an animal is diagnosed, do you just treat with antibiotics and are they effective? Yeah. So it depends on which clinical picture they have. So like I said, there can be Kidney, liver, and lung is kind of the big thing. So yes, Mm -hmm. antibiotics are definitely the first thing. We tend to use penicillins and doxycycline, which is a tetracycline antibiotic. Those are both been shown to be safe and effective in dogs and and cats, uh, but obviously you don't need, we're not talking about this in cats because they don't get sick. So um, in dogs, the most common penicillin that we use is amoxicillin with clavulonic acid or augmentin in humans. You've probably taken augmentin for illness before. That's pretty much what we use. They have different names for the injectable versions. If animals aren't eating, we'll use injectable ones in hospital. Um, Same with doxycycline. We will do that for usually about two weeks. We treat them with antibiotics. There are a couple antibiotics that work for those other species. So there's one called ceftiafura, which we use in our big animals or exceed is the brand name. And then there are some antibiotics that have been shown to work, but are hard on the kidneys. So we don't use those as much because they already have kidney disease. And so you treat with antibiotics and then you want to treat all the other things that are coming with it. So IV fluids are really important for those kidney and liver issues mm-hmm. to try to flush everything out, especially for those animals that aren't eating. We do appetite support, antioxidants for the liver if needed, and anything else that comes along with it. So a lot of times anti-nausea medications and Uh, appetite stimulants and things like that. Those are less specific to lepto and more to the illness that comes with it. It is resistant to a couple different types of antibiotics. Um, And then in humans, they use third generation cephalosporins, which we don't use as much in dogs, but that's like the ceftifurs and things like ceftazidine. So those are new antibiotics that are pretty strong and have been used in, in humans. So those are all effective. Some animals that are really severely have really severe kidney disease need dialysis. So they do dialysis in dogs. It only is usually done at the big teaching hospitals, like where the vet schools are. Um, Most places don't have otherwise. Uh, Sometimes we'll do like blood transfusions if they have really bad clotting issues. And sometimes we do anti-inflammatories for the lung issues, like steroids or something like that for, for lung issues. But other than that, a big thing about treating animals with lepto is keeping your yourself healthy <laughs> yeah. because their urine and their feces and all that kind of stuff is contaminated. So a lot of times they'll put urinary catheters in to just prevent too much contamination of the environment and uh, use PPE and stuff to protect yourself because it is contagious to humans. So we always have to make sure that we keep a close eye on that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, I didn't even think of that. That's a little scary. You mentioned that, you know, you wouldn't treat a cat because a cat isn't going to manifest the disease. It's going to be like a reservoir organism. Mm -hmm. But say you have a house and there's dogs and cats. Can the dog get it from the cat? And then in that case, would would you treat the cat then or would you just treat the dog? I quite honestly don't know if they recommend treating the reservoir organisms. I don't know Mm -hmm. that. There's been a lot of studies on the antibiotic being effective in in cats. I do think that if you have an outdoor cat that is coming inside and potentially being in the area where a dog is eating, then that would definitely be a big risk. So um, that would be something that I think 
probably need some more studies. That antibiotic is is safe in cats. Both of them are, so I don't think it would hurt. But I don't yeah. know of any current studies. There's probably some out there now, but that I know of. <laughs> okay. And and how often have you seen this infection? So I've only had it a couple times confirmed. A lot okay. of times we suspect it because we they have all the clinical signs and mm-hmm. all of the things that go with it, but I never get an actual diagnosis. I had a couple cases when I was in vet school up in Gainesville, and that makes sense with the environment that you're mm-hmm. in, you know, swampy area, lots of wildlife, oh, yeah. close to the, all of the nature areas. But I had a case in my internship in Tampa that was a dog that a rat got in their house and there was rat poop near its food. And um, so that was a dog that never went anywhere nature-y, but still got lepto. And that was a confirmed case that was positive on the PCRs that came back. Unfortunately, that animal did pass away from kidney failure. And then I have... I've had a couple chronic cases of kidney and liver things where I'm highly suspicious of lepto. Mm-hmm. Um, had one last week that turned up negative on all the tests, but is getting better. So that's good news, at least. So a lot of times we treat for what we suspect is lepto, but it doesn't always, we don't always get a hundred percent answer, but it is common. Prognosis is dependent on which type of disease they get and how intensively they're treated and how quickly they're caught. Last time I checked, stats it was an 80 percent survival rate rate with um, conservative treatment and with the dialysis patients dialysis is expensive and so a lot of dogs that need it if they don't get it they will either pass away or be euthanized so that is something that we definitely see because it is so got such a limited availability a lot of dogs will have some level of like chronic kidney changes long term Mm. depending on when they started treatment and it's a poorer prognosis for those dogs that do have the lung complication part of it, which is, again, not something that we see very much. They see it a lot in Western Europe for some reason, whatever whatever type of lepto they have in Western Europe, but we don't see a lot of the lung issues here. Hmm, That's interesting. Oh, I just keep thinking of these rats. Rats are just, rats (laughs) spread, rats spread the plague, rats spread lepto. Right. Maybe it's the rat, the Gross. rats of what the rats of Western Europe are, are not sounding yeah. very safe to me. <laughs> <laughs> they got a bad history. Yeah, seriously, they they have to. I don't know. This is really fascinating. All of this information. Is there anything else about this bacterium or this infection that uh, you want to share that hasn't come up? Yeah. So, I mean, there is a vaccine. Um, oh, yeah. So, you know, control is, is it's a preventable disease. So you basically want to control rodents, you know, minimize things that they can get into. If you do have infected animals, isolate them. And then there's a there's a vaccine available at your local vet. It's a yearly vaccine that covers four of the different serovars. You usually have to do a booster. And so one vaccine and then another one two to four weeks later. And then after that, it's a once a year. And that pretty much prevents shedding, um, prevents the organism from colonizing the kidneys, and then um, it helps protect them from shedding when they are, if they do get infected. Pretty much most dogs that are vaccinated don't have clinical illness, which is good. And then obviously, if animals are sick, you want to keep yourself clean. We do see it a lot in zoo animals and aquatic animals. And so That's something to think about with animals that live in zoos and aquariums. Um, Like I said, the sea lions, some of those other species Mm -hmm. that live in things. And then we do see it um, 
after big storms. So especially uh, you'll see people walking through water when in flooded areas. That's a really good reason not to walk through a flooded area. You could get something like leptospirosis. There was a big outbreak in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. There's been outbreaks in other places where there's been standing water for a long time. I'm sure we'll probably see some in the aftermath of Hurricane Ian, you know, because of all the standing water we've seen down here. So there is definitely reason to keep, make sure that you keep yourself safe and wash your hands really well. Don't spend too much time in standing water for the most part. Uh, Cause it's, it's, it's just as bad in people as it is in animals. Um, uh-huh. Animals is just my expertise. Sure. <laughs> Well, and I haven't done many of these podcast episodes yet, but I think the takeaway from all of the episodes I've done, which I didn't anticipate, is probably do not hang out in standing water. (laughs) Don't hang out in standing water. Wash your hands. Be vigilant, um, which I think we all know from this pandemic that we're living through. But I I mean, I could tell you from my experience doing microscopy that you don't want to mess around with some of the stuff living in in stagnant (laughs) stagnant ponds and streams. So, yeah, Yeah, for sure. There's a lot of things like like in Florida, we worry about wild boars and things like Mm. that. So hunters, um, you want to be careful. Uh, But the main thing is just making sure that your animals are vaccinated and keep your cats inside, which is really easy things that we can do. Um, that can keep them healthy and keep us healthy long term. And on that note, like as a vet, I'm sure you have opinions on keeping cats inside. But are there other reasons why we should keep our cats inside if we're going to oh, give a little so PSA? Because I think it, <laughs> yeah, well, I think yeah, it's that's... really important. Because I, I take Murray outside, but I keep him on a leash and a harness, which he loves. Yeah. Like that's great. Yeah. But I have yeah. so many feral cats living behind um, where I live. And I feel really bad for them, but I also feel really bad for the birds and other right. populations. So Yeah, so know. that is a big issue for feral cats. And I love cats as much as the next person, mm-hmm, but I also too. love wildlife and birds and small mammals. So cats have, are the number one cause of small mammal decline in North America, I think, uh, and small birds. So cats do not need to be outside. Um, we... Domestic cats are not the same as your wild cats and panthers and things like that. So that's a common misconception that cats like to be up. They like to be outside. They do like it, but they don't need to be outside. Mm-hmm. Not only do they kill small mammals, so squirrels, rodents, things like that, um, but they kill a lot of different songbird species and small bird species. They also are exposed to diseases outside. So they're exposed to lepto. They're exposed to... Uh, which doesn't make them sick, but could make your other animals sick and make mm-hmm. you sick. They are exposed to feline leukemia virus and feline AIDS virus, um, which are not curable. The feline leukemia virus has a vaccine, but the feline AIDS virus does not really have an effective vaccine. Um, and those are both fatal diseases. And then there's the trauma things that they can can happen to them outside. So getting hit by a car, getting attacked by, I've seen a few coyote attacks around oh, here, yeah. um, large birds, you know, big hawks and things like that can take birds. We see a lot of herpes virus, which is not necessarily a fatal disease, but is a very common communicable disease. And that can lead to eye issues and respiratory issues and things like that. So there's a lot of reasons to keep your cats inside, both for their health and for 
animal's health, going out on a leash is perfectly fine because they are supervised. And so if you want to train your cat to be on a harness and on a leash, then that's great. But I definitely don't recommend that cats spend any unsupervised time outside. GI parasites and heartworms are another thing I forgot to mention. (laughs) Um, Those can also happen to cats. Um, So things like hookworms, roundworms, you can get those from your cat toxoplasmosis you can get that from your cat um so all of those are bad diseases that you definitely don't want and you don't want for your cat and then think about the birds and the other things out there as well feral cats are a huge a huge issue there's a lot of opinions about spay neuter release programs won't get into that you could have a whole podcast Mm -hmm, about um, whether those are effective or not but definitely spay and neuter your cats vaccinate and microchip your animals and if you have a personal cat keep them inside for sure. Okay. Well, Kira, this has been great. And before we finish, I have one more question that I have to ask you. So you've seen pictures of my cat, Murray. Yes. In your professional opinion, how cute is he? Is he the the cutest boy in the world? I think he has like a condition where he's he's so cute. I have a soft spot for orange tabbies um, for sure. So I definitely think that they are some of the cutest, sweetest kitties in the world. But yes, I will. I'm a sucker for anything with missing parts. So when (laughs) I'm missing legs, um, I think it just makes them that much cuter. So he is 13 out of 10 cuteness. Thank you. It's professional opinion. (laughs) I'm glad that we've settled this scientifically on this scientific (laughs) podcast. (laughs) Yes. If people listening want to follow you or your work, is there any social media they can check out? Yeah, I am on Instagram at dr underscore k-y-r-h underscore h. So um, Dr. (laughs) Kira H with underscores in between. Twitter is Kira underscore Hartog, H-A-R-T-O-G. I'm not on Twitter very often anymore. But yeah, most of my stuff I think I tend to have on, on Instagram. So that's where I usually am. Thank you so much for talking to me today. I really like yeah. this. Thank you. This was fun. Yeah, it was. <laughs> no, it, this was nice to catch up. I'm sure in the future, if I continue this podcast, I will have, there's plenty of other diseases and microbes yeah. that I'm sure you can talk about. Yeah. I loved this conversation with Kira. I'm honestly kind of jealous that she's a vet because I think that must be one of the most interesting jobs and I'm obsessed with cats. Although my cat Murray is the cutest one, so seeing dozens of other cats every day would probably be disappointing to me. I didn't know much about leptospirosis before this interview and I think Kira is so smart and did a great job breaking down all aspects of this infection from the ecology and distribution of leptospira bacteria in the world to the mechanism of infection and outcomes to the epidemiology. I hope this gives us all something to think about, especially for dog owners. And cat owners, you heard it here, letting your cats roam free can be really destructive to natural ecosystems. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast. Tiny Living Beings is a Couch Microscopy production. Intro music is by Elf Power, and outro and transition music is by El Felipe Beniches. For more information on microbes to the podcast in general, follow at couch underscore microscopy on Instagram or at couch microscopy on Twitter. You can also find some relevant merch on couchmicroscopy.com slash store. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you all have a great day.